This is the Hidden Wire Podcast, episode 682 with Michelle Gelfand, the hidden forces of tight and loose cultures, rule makers and rule breakers. Enjoy the show. G'day and welcome to another interview on the Hidden Wire Podcast. Guys, I hope you're well. Thanks for taking the time out to tune in, as always, to the Hidden Wire Podcast. I hope you're enjoying the interviews and the other bits and pieces that I'm delivering along the way as well. Guys, today I am delivering an interview that I did with Michelle Gelfand. It's a fantastic chat. She is a distinguished university professor at the University of Maryland College Park, and she uses field experimental computational and neuroscience methods to understand the evolution of culture. It's a fascinating interview about her new book, Rule Makers and Rule Breakers, How Tight and Loose Cultures Wire Our World. And the exploration of the powerful forces that tighten loose cultures play in wiring our world. Michelle Gelfand is a celebrated cultural psychologist having spent two decades of research within this field. She takes us on an epic journey through human cultures offering a startling new view of the world and ourselves. It's not often we think about how cultures determine our behaviours. However, with many great examples, Michelle delivers some surprising discoveries. She explains why and how much of the diversity in the way we think and act derives from the key difference of how tightly or loosely we adhere to social norms. Man, this is a really, really cool um, eye-opening sort of conversation, guys. I hope you love it. Let me know what you think. Jump on to thehiddenwide.com. Leave your comments there. You can also reach myself and Michelle using the links in the show notes. Guys, enjoy the interview. Cheers. G'day, Michelle, and welcome to the Hidden Wild Podcast. How are you today? I'm great. Great to be here. Where are you? Maryland. Is that right? Maryland. That's right. Just outside, about 10 miles from D.C., Washington, D.C. Okay. How's it going over there today? Like, what's the, uh, what's the weather like? No? No one <laughs> it's, listens? Yeah, it's super hot. It's like 80 degrees in, the, in October, but uh, we're still up in the sort of post-summer, yeah, right. uh, and it's a great day. Right. So does it get pretty cold there? It does, but not as cold as like my hometown originally in New York or Chicago, uh, where I went to grad school just south of Chicago. So hmm. it's a pretty nice balance. Oh, that sounds good. That sounds good. It's actually quite warm here and a bit stormy uh, the last week, but um, you got to love love the changes in weather. It keeps things interesting, eh? It's right. <laughs> so, uh, Michelle, tell us um, a little bit about your, your field of work. I mean, you're a cultural psychologist. Is that what we call that's right, cross-cultural yep. psychologist. Okay, and, you, and you've been in studying this field for a couple of decades now, is that right? That's right, yeah. So what, what got you into um, psychology and, and cultural psychology? Yeah, this is a great question because, um, you know, I didn't plan on, I wasn't like three years old saying, I want to be a cross-cultural psychologist when I grow up. Uh, yeah, that'd be good. <laughs> like, yeah. like many people, you know, first I want to be a veterinarian, um, and then I realized I'm really allergic to animals, so that wasn't going to work. And then I was pre-med because I really loved biology and the brain. But actually, my life took a big pivot in 1988 when I ventured off to London for a semester. And it's interesting, I was essentially a very sheltered New Yorker from Long Island, I don't know if you know that this classic New Yorker cartoon of, of that looks at what New Yorkers, how New Yorkers see the world, that it basically is kind of, there's New York City, and then there's New Jersey, and then there's kind of the rest of the world. <laughs> and, yeah. and, you know, and that's kind of how I saw the world in 1988. And I, I went to London for a semester, and I, you know, it's interesting, it's not, you know, terribly different than the United States and compared to other cultures, but I had a lot of culture shock. And I remember this one distinct phone call that I had with my father. This actually really changed my life, where I was 
telling him, Dad, you know, it's really strange that people just travel from London to Paris or London to the Netherlands just for the weekend. Mm. And my dad, who has this kind of thick Brooklyn accent, said to me, well, just imagine like it's going from New York to Pennsylvania. And I thought, wow, that's an awesome metaphor. So literally, this is a true story. The next day, I booked a trip, a low-budget trip to Egypt (laughs) from London. And I, and I said to my dad, I'm like, Dad, it's just like going from here to California. Don't worry, because he was a little freaked out. Um, but, you know, what happened was that on my, this trip to Egypt and then beyond, as I was traveling, I realized, wow, yeah, wow, there's this incredible force out there that is invisible, that's, you know, affecting us all the time from morning to night. And it, it's something that we know so little about, and that's culture. And so I that's decided yeah. to come home, and I switched majors, and I went to work with the founder of the field in Champaign-Urbana. His name is Harry Triandis. And it's from there that I started saying, hey, I'm going to use the scientific tools, the best scientific tools to study this systematically. And that's really what started it is that one little phone call. <laughs> that phone call and that trip. And that's that's really cool because it's one of those things, you know, like, you know, that, that three-year-olds of, you know, it'd be nice to know where you're going in <laughs> life, but no one does. And, and I guess some people have the fortunate um, fortunate circumstance or whatever you call it of, of figuring it out pretty early and others are, are still going, oh, what am I going to do? Um, yeah, you know, with, with my right. life. And, and you actually sort of made a bit of a conscious decision. There's something that fascinated you and you said, well, that's where I'm going to pivot myself into studying of culture using, you know, the um, various uh, methods of science. Well, it's interesting because when I left Colgate, which is our, where as an undergrad, I thought, okay, I'm going to apply to different companies and try to work doing culture in these companies. And that, of course, I got like 50 rejection letters. Uh, and then I thought, well, maybe I'll become a cross-cultural trainer. Like I'll train people to understand cultures and work at like the State Department because there's so much That's conflict happening. Yeah. And, and then I went to Champaign. And again, this is kind of a, another thing about like life happens, you're making other plans. I never expected to become an academic. I didn't have any academics in the family. And my advisor there was like, you know, you're, you're going to be a professor. And I'm like, ah, oh, what are you talking about? <laughs> and, and, uh, and the same thing, you, you sort of like go with the flow of, wow, I started doing research, I started teaching, I started loving doing that. And, and I made another pivot to say, I'm going to do this ac- as an academic professor career. And, and, uh, and I, it's, it's, you know, they say, if you love your job, you'll never work a day in your life. And I, I feel so great for having yeah, discovered something that keeps me busy all the time and excited so cool i like that uh, little uh, story into your field of work and then the question i have it's sort of um off tangent but along that journey i mean there's a lot of people that are going well which way do i go there's so many opportunities so many options you know is this my passion is that my passion what have been some of the maybe lessons that potentially you're sort of conscious of or aware of that um you learnt along the way or maybe the 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 practices you sort of uh, used to guide you um towards that path that was made sense to you that that you're actually in love with yeah and you know it's such a great question and you know it's interesting because i was a senior in college i took this inventory that's called the strong campbell interest inventory and still exists and it's a really important tool, actually, that I think everyone in the world should know about. And it's basically asks you a lot of questions about what your preferences are in terms of your, your lifestyle and your interests. And it's very well validated. And what it predicts is it gives you a list of occupations that it thinks that you'll fit in. Oh, and yeah. and it, doesn't, it doesn't tell you what you'll be good at, <laughs> but it tells you what you think that you'll fit in. Hmm. And it's not the kind of inventory you can really fake very easily because you're given kind of choices. And it's based on a theory of occupations um, about the way the occupations differ. Like, do you like people? Do you like things? You know, um, and, and it turns out that when I took that inventory, the first thing it said, the number one occupation it said was professor. <laughs> and I just said, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to be a professor. <laughs> 
And so, you know, that inventory probably was what the first signal to me that you should be thinking about something you haven't even ever thought of. So I always tell people, you know, to kind of take that and see what, you know, how that, what it shows for you. And then, you know, for me, I just, I sought out information from so many places because I knew I wanted to study culture, but I wasn't sure should this be in anthropology or in international relations or in psychology. And I just, I simply talked to a lot of people, I, you know, people Maybe I'm talking about Americans who like to talk about themselves. You know? So I would just call and interview people and, and I would read about what people do. And I just was in that discovery mm. mode for at least a year. I was fortunate because I had a job and I could do this on the side and I had some support for my family. So I, it's not something I, I know it might be difficult for us. But I tell my undergraduate students all the time, like, you might change your idea about what you can do all the time. I just stay in that mode of investigating and being curious about what might be out there that you be and talk to people and learn as much as humanly possible. And that's, you know, kind of how, I mean, I accidentally did that. I'm not sure I had that mentality at the time, but that's what I did. Yeah. It's good and advice too, you know, stay, yeah. stay curious and then keep investigating, um, those areas. Cause you, you never know where it might exactly lead, but, um, you got to stay open to it. And then, you know, the other thing is like, do you follow like a bit of intuition there as to yeah. other than going from the test that you did, uh, saying that you might be a professor. <laughs> um, I mean, was there a bit of intuition, do you think? Well, I think that I had a passion to understand culture. I just couldn't believe how much I'm ignoring something that's so important. And, you know, humans, like we've, we have all these like technological feats, you know, we've wired the world, we landed a man on the moon, we've, you know, eradicated many diseases and we, we've, we've invented the iPhone and we've even trained dogs to ride skateboards, but, but we, we don't understand a lot about ourselves, which is culture. And it's very invisible. And so I had this sense of, wow, I really want to understand this. And I became really passionate about that. I just wasn't sure with that passion, what would I do? And that's why I started leaving that open to would I be in an applied position in, in a state department type position or, or eventually as an academic. Uh, but I think intuition is important. I think I would say that at the time I trusted my judgment that I, I, I'm so curious about this that I have to find a way to make it into a career. There wasn't an obvious path to do so. And of course, there's the pressure of, wait, aren't you going to become a doctor or a lawyer, you know, or, you know, at least a dentist, yeah. <laughs> not a cross culture. But, you know, I think, um, you know, even nowadays with my career, um, you know, I always kind of listen to my gut of like, okay, like now I'm doing more cultural neuroscience in, in our, in our lab where we bring in neuroscientists to study culture in, in the brain. And I feel like that's where my talents were as an undergrad. I love biology, love the brain. And I kind of came back to cool. it, yeah. you know, now 30 years later. So it's, uh, it is a matter, matter of intuition and trusting your sense of what excites you, what's, what you find interesting. Yeah, I like it. So why culture? Talk to us about culture. I mean, you sort of said it's a, a bit of a guiding force that surrounds us every single day from um, the moment we wake to the moment we sleep. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that it's it's kind of a puzzle that we just ignore it. Um, hmm. You know, when we send people abroad, we typically, in organizations, send people who are technically competent or that are really intelligent. We don't think about, wait, how do they match the culture that they're going to? And you know, that's something you think, wait, people, smart people would know that cultural intelligence matters on international assignments or cultural intelligence matters in diplomacy or mm. it matters in intercultural marriages. You know, it's not something that we know a lot about. I'll, I'll say that even in my own host discipline, which is psychology, for many, many years, it's been kind of a Western enterprise. You know, we're studying American undergraduates or Western undergraduates, including Aussies <laughs> and including people from the UK. Uh, but, it, it, you know, it's only recently 
that people really start investigating, wait, what does psychology look like in India or in Singapore or in Iraq? Uh, my discipline is very little research in the Middle East, for example. I do now a lot of work in the region trying to understand how do people view the world? What are basic psychological uh, principles? How do they uh, apply in other places? So there's been this you know, problem in science that we also don't know a lot about it, as well as in the sort of regular, you know, everyday world, hmm. um, even though it's so important. And you know, it has the capacity uh, to produce a lot of conflict, and I think that's what motivated me originally also uh, to look at it. I also felt that when we talk about culture, it's often in terms of superficial types of differences, like red versus blue state or east versus west, rural versus urban. Like, I was really curious about, is there this kind of underlying deeper cultural template um, that drives human behavior? And, and so that was what my interests were. So the uh, culture driving behavior. So does the culture um, of any, I guess it could be a group, couldn't it? A large group, a small group, a workplace, a country. Um, does that drive the psychology of the people within it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really important what you just mentioned. That I, I've been studying culture at various different levels of analysis. I first started looking at nations, and you know, you can from a microscope metaphor, you can think about nations more generally. I can compare the U.S. and Japan, or uh, or U.S. and Iraq, or other places uh, in general on what are the underlying metrics on which we can place these cultures, just like we can with individuals. Like we know that there's certain personality types that I, we could compare people on how extroverted or introverted they are. The question is, what are those dimensions for cultures? But then the question is, do those same, does that lens also apply to states or to organizations or to social class or even to our own households? And that's the, what the subject of my book, Rule Makers or Breakers, is about. It's about how do you understand some of the you know important um, drivers of culture and how they're operating in various aspects of our lives. Okay. So let's talk about it. You've got the new book um, just launched, so Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, How Tight and Loose Cultures Wire the World. Where do we start? I mean, is it good to start with sort of a <laughs> definition of what what a culture is? Like, like the, the definition that I often come to is the culture defines how we do things around here. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's I've been studying over the last couple of decades uh, many, many cultures, uh, from the ancient Aztecs uh, to Alabama, <laughs> to the state, from Sparta to Singapore, and even like the military or yeah, Silicon right. Valley. And what I was trying to look at when I was studying these cultures, and I use a lot of methods, um, whether it's you know field experiments and, and lab experiments or neuroscience or computational models, to try and understand is there this kind of deeper hidden dimension on which these groups vary? And it turns out that and there's many dimensions on which cultures vary, but one very important one that has been kind of hidden is how strictly groups adhere to social norms. And by social norms, I mean these kind of unwritten rules for behavior that sometimes get kind of more formalized. Um, and, you know, we as a species, we follow rules all the time. We don't even realize it, you know, from the moment we wake up to when we go to bed, we're, we wear clothes when we go outside, most of us. <laughs> you know, we drive on the right side of the road or the left, depending on where we live. We don't drive on both sides. Um, we uh, don't have sex in libraries or in public parks, most of us. It's a shame. <laughs> you know, we, yeah. <laughs> you know, you start thinking about the number of rules we're following. It's great. It's incredible. Um, so, I mean, we're talking about authority-created rules, or these are just rules that come through, you know, these are through, set morals you know, and ethics of, of the culture or... Yeah, 
yeah, these are like, we invented these, humans invented these. You know, we need these rules because we want to predict each other's behavior. I mean, you can imagine, and, and to coordinate our behavior, you can imagine how strange it would be if people start singing in libraries or start shouting, you know, in uh, business meetings all the time. And what if, like, you know, people were just doing their own thing versus following rules? So we wouldn't be able to coordinate on much anything, like societies can function, businesses can function. So we so really need to order to brings a bit of order yeah. to the, uh, the otherwise what would be chaos total chaos i mean it's incredible how much we take it for granted that other people follow rules and we follow rules and you know we invented this construct there's no other species that has it to the same extent we do but what i was focused on and this is what rule breakers rule breakers is about is how some groups uh, follow rules more strictly. Um, they have more rules and they have punishments for when de- people deviate and other groups are more permissive. They're more loose. They accept a wider range of, of behavior. Uh, and I call them loose cultures. And it turns out that this distinction can help us as, a, you know, think about it as a flashlight. It can help us to illuminate national differences, state differences, organizational differences. Even each of us has our own tight and loose mindset. And what's what was fascinating to me is what predicts it. Like, why would some groups tend to be tight or loose? Is there a, a good logic to this? Um, I thought there could be. And also, what are the trade-offs that each of these um, that the that strength of norms provides groups? What are the advantages of loose groups or the disadvantages, and vice versa? Um, and so that's really kind of what I, that's been driving my curiosity in this. Um, and then, of course, you know what. What domains can we apply it to? What can we learn about this in, in our everyday worlds? Okay, that's interesting. Um, so when we talk about a loose group, that's a group that the social norms aren't there's, uh, prolific. Is that is that correct? Yeah, where there's a wide range of, uh, of behavior that's seen as permissible. I mean, you can compare, for example, Singapore versus New Zealand. And uh, okay. I do this I have extensive comparison between the two. In Singapore, this has become more formalized. Lee Kuan Yew, who is the former prime minister, really was a good cross-cultural psychologist in so many ways. Uh, he, uh, you know, he basically created a lot of rules in Singapore. It's a very small country, uh, has a lot of people per square mile. I'll get back to that uh, in a minute. But, mm. um, you know, there's many, many rules there. I mean, even walking in front of your uh, curtains naked is a, a violation. <laughs> um, you take, you, like, littering and spitting and even bringing gum into the country is subject to fines. Um, there's a good reason for that that I'll get back to. But, you know, you fly over to New Zealand and, you know, it, there's much more permissiveness. People walk barefoot in banks in some places. Um, there's a, a tradition of burning couches at some universities. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and there's much more tolerance of, of different types of behavior. Yeah, and I can um, certainly relate uh, living in Japan for a period of time you know, coming from Australia um, where we can walk down the street with no shoes on and potentially into a <laughs> shop without a shirt or shoes. Uh, you do that in Japan, and and I had a mate that actually did it once. I was quite embarrassed, <laughs> but um, I, yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, that's interesting. Okay, I think to Japan too. I, I took my kids there recently, and I have I have two teenagers, and they're really pretty well behaved. But they sounded so loud on the subway. You look at the subway as a interesting microcosm of tight loose. I mean, in Japan, there's many rules on the subway. You know, don't put makeup on on the subway. Like, don't play your uh, your your music too loud. Um, there's literally signs that show you all the rules. And then you go to New York City, where I'm from originally, and there's like very few rules that people pay attention to on the subway. So you see a wider range of behavior mm, um, yeah. in the city subway that you would ever in a Japanese um, subway where I had to keep telling my kids to, to pipe down. <laughs> Even though they were pretty quiet, they still sounded and stood out. They sounded very loud. 
That's the thing. I mean, and and you know, I get it from living there. I've lived there for for several years of my life, and um, you know, they have such that population where if they didn't have such rules, yeah, it could be a little bit more chaotic. And I guess that really brings a lot of order to what otherwise would be, um, you know, a lot of chaos. Yeah, I mean, it's it's actually something you just picked up on is what we were looking at in the first paper that we published on this, which was published in the journal Science. Um, and we were interested in what makes certain cultures tight or loose. And one of, one of the things that's interesting is that when you look at cultures that are tight, in our data that was like Japan and uh, Singapore and to some extent Germany and Austria, hmm. or cultures that are loose like um, Brazil and New Zealand um, and the Netherlands and the United States and Australia – um, that they're not united by any common geography. They don't have a similar religion or, or language. So the question is, why would some groups evolve to be tight or loose? And what I thought might be one factor driving it, and there's a couple, but one was that, you know, tight cultures tend to have a lot of threat. So you take Japan, for example, it has a lot of threat from Mother Nature. It constantly has Mother Nature's fury in terms of natural disasters. It has been a lot, involved in a lot of conflict over its history. Um, it has high population density, many, many people per square mile, just like Singapore. Um, and it has very little arable land. It doesn't have a lot of food. And so my hunch, and this is borne out with some of the data, was mm. that when, when groups have a lot of threat, they need stronger rules to coordinate to survive, and and, and that groups that have less threat, um, in general, um, can afford to be more permissive. And so we measured things like how many natural disasters does a country have to deal with, how many times has it been potentially invaded over the last hundred years, how much density and population has it had, even now or even back in 1500. And in all these cases, and this applies across many contexts, the state level, the organizational level, uh, even social class, that groups that have threat tend to have stronger rules and they serve a function. Um, other factors, you know, also weigh in in this equation. Cultures that have more diversity tend to be looser. Um, cultures that have more de- traditions of debate um, and even mobility, like moving around a lot where it's harder to agree upon norms, um, tend to be looser. So there's other factors and there's certainly contexts that are threatened and still are loose and vice versa. But as a general principle, um, tight norms evolve for a decent reason, a good reason. But from an evolutionary point of view, I mean, the, the social norms or the culture, because um, you touched on a point there about, you know, survival, and, and is it for the benefit of the survival of the group? Yeah, I mean, you think like, about it, like the, when you yeah. have, that's right, I mean, when you think about it, when you have a natural disaster, you repeatedly have chronic threat. You want to be able to depend on people and you want people to follow rules. You don't want people defecting in these kinds of circumstances. You need to coordinate. There's not, they're not problems you can solve as an individual. They're collective sort of social action problems. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what's interesting is that even under a temporary threat, we've shown this in our own data, like after the Boston bombing in the United States that happened, this tragic incident, we surveyed people in Boston. And sure enough, you know, people who felt this was really very close to home to them felt like they wanted greater tightness. They wanted stronger rules. Uh, I can bring people into the laboratory and even tell them about terrorism threats or disaster threats, or even that the Maryland campus has a lot of people on it versus a dozen. And this all kind of tightens people's psychology almost immediately. So it is this kind of response that groups have to chronic threat, but can also be temporarily activated. And it can even be exaggerated or illusory. (laughs) That's more on the political end of things of what leaders do to tighten up groups. Uh, follows that same 
kind of evolutionary principle that you were alluding to. And, and that's, that's uh, something that I write about quite about quite a lot about in the book. Yeah, we see like, like a lot of that and, and we call it about being, you know, the nannied state or being mothered too closely. And, and I think, you know, a lot of these rules and stuff that are created um, aren't really that purposeful. I mean, I think they're trying to control uh, a little bit too strongly when, when it's unnecessary. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I mean, when, when there is threat, um, rules are helpful to provide order. So tight groups in our research, they tend to have much more order. They have less crime. They have uh, more uniformity. They have more self-control. Uh, Japan's a great example. I mean, it's there's very little crime in Japan. Um, it's one of the lowest crime rates around the world. And, and it's funny. There was a Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me NPR show that was asking the audience, you know, what do Japanese policemen need more of? And we were all guessing and, you know, thinking, people are thinking maybe they need higher salaries, maybe they need more vacation. It turns out they need more crime because <laughs> the crime rate is so low that some Japanese policemen have taken to trying to egg people on to commit crimes just because they're so bored. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, so, you know, and, you know, they have more synchrony. When we look at um, city clocks on streets around the world, it's the tight cultures where clocks say the same time. They're more synchronized. In loose cultures like in Brazil or Greece, you're not quite sure. Sh- what time it is things are less organized Mm. Um, and and even as i mentioned self-control when you're in an environment where there's tight norms like you're monitoring your behavior so you're behaving uh more normative you're following more rules so there's less debt there's less obesity there's less alcoholism in tight cultures and on the so they have more order and and on the flip side loose cultures have much more disorder but the the opposite is that loose cultures tend to be very open they're open to different people. Um, they're open to different ideas. They're more creative in our in our research, um, and they're more open to change. And it's the tight cultures that have much more problems with openness. They're more ethnocentric. Um, they're wow. more they're less creative. But you know, I want to follow up on your point that you know, in our research, we call it the Goldilocks principle that. Hmm. Some groups might need to veer tight or loose based on their environments, but that it's really clear in our data that the more extreme you get in either direction, whether you get extremely tight or extremely loose, they both cause a lot of problems for nations. They have higher suicide, the extremes, they have uh, higher, lower happiness, they have more unrest. And, you know, so some groups get too loose and they become completely unpredictable, kind of like what we were talking about earlier in the conversation. Hmm. Uh, that often, and, and even organizations, you know, like Tesla in the United States, we talk a lot about Tesla. It's a great company, but it's arguably needs to tighten up a bit. And on the flip side, you see some groups get too extreme on the, on the tight end of the continuum, um, both nationally, but also in organizations. In, in, in the United States, last year, there was a big uh, PR fiasco with the United Airlines. It's a tight company because it needs to be. It's, it's operating in a very um, unsafe environment. It's got to have a lot of coordination and rules, but they arguably got too tight and they need to loosen up a little bit. Um, so this is a principle of like, okay, we can mindfully say, you know, assess tight loose and say, are we getting too extreme in either direction? Cause mm. both extremes are problematic. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, a lot of clarity. I mean, stuff that we, we don't think about, as you said, sort of at the start of the show, but, um, <laughs> you, you make it quite, you know, it's, it's, it's logic. It's understandable, I suppose. Um, the tight and loose cultures, who, who makes the rules? Like, I mean, we talked about authority, uh, I suppose, of whether it's an organization or a nation making the rules, but what are the, what are the other rule makers? Well, you know, you could think about even, you know, your own household as a parent, you know, you're making the rules, right? I mean, and I think, again, like some families need to be tighter or looser, like working class individuals need 
more rules because they're trying to avoid poverty and they're trying to have their kids fit into more dangerous occupations. But the same can be said about parenting. Like you don't want to get too extreme because research shows that if you're too controlling, if you're too much of a helicopter parent or you're too laissez-faire, you let your kids do whatever, uh, you don't make any rules, that they both have a lot of problems. So, um, you know, in the book, I talk about how as a parent, I actually negotiate this stuff with my kids. You know, I talk about here are the domains that we need to be tied in and here are the domains we could be loosening. Let's talk about it. It sounds a little cheesy, but, you know, clearly that. Yeah, it's important case, about that. <laughs> I mean, I think it makes for more buy in when we say, OK, like these are the important domains in this family. Like we can we can discuss this and organizations, too. I mean, yeah, you know, the the top dogs are making a lot of rules, but the best organizations are trying to balance tight and loose and, and getting their employees involved in that process of change is, is also important hmm. to remake the rules. Yeah. Well, I guess that's what we try to do on the, um, the national scale as well um, in, in politics and that get the, get the buy-in from the, the, the public. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, I think politicians uh, themselves are, you know, you could see a lot of norm violation happening all around the world with top leaders, including my very own president, uh, Donald Trump. You know, he's a quintessential norm violator. In fact, he violates so many rules um, that people now realize how important they were. And <laughs> we took them for granted. Um, and, and, and so that's something that we see all around the world is uh, even our political leaders d- decide what rules they want to abide by. And and, and the signals that sends to, to other leaders around the world is, is an important you know, issue that we have to be discussing. I suppose the challenge, and this is a question that came to me earlier as well, is that, you know, we could look as a, as a country, Australia, we could look at some of the social norms that America have, some of the rules that they have, mm-hmm. and we could start adopting based on that, which actually perhaps have no relevance or necessary importance here at the moment or ever. Mm-hmm. Um, but we adopt them anyway and bring them into our state. <laughs> I mean, that and that probably happens at the, the cultural level as well. Someone new um, comes into the household or the family or um, you know, someone else, um, you know, visits the country and, and they're trying to bring different uh, values or norms into that, that culture um, that perhaps don't have a place. Is that obviously yeah. a challenge? I think it is a challenge. And I think, um, you know, that same thing is in organizations. When you want to try to change culture, you have to think about, wait, which rules are really that important? You know, maybe we've come to have some rules that we can get a, get rid of. Um and I think that's what happens is that we have to think as individuals, which things are most important to us to have as rules um, and which things can we uh, have a little more autonomy um, and vice versa for people who love to be loose. You know, maybe some things could be subject to a little bit more structure. Like maybe we can give up uh, on low priority issues. I study negotiation, so that's where that kind of comes from. Um, but I think that we can have conversations about norms and and really be explicit about it, that we've had far less difficulties in our relationships because they're, we're, we're, being, we're having conflict over them, so we might as well make them the subject of negotiation. So do you talk about that in your book, like how, how we go about, um, you know, because it's really important because office, you know, in an organization usually it's the top man that makes the rules, but if they're actually using the, the entire culture to decide on what rules are important, then that makes a lot more collaborative sense. Um, but perhaps isn't happening as often as, as one yeah. might like. So do you talk about that in the book, like how, yeah. how we can go about um, in- encouraging or, I guess, influencing the social norms? Yeah, absolutely, because I think, you know, we're the recipients of the influence of social norms and we've created social norms, but we haven't harnessed the power of them 
to kind of make our lives and the planet a better place. And so toward the end of the book, I really have that perspective of how do we actually be mindful about creating the right normative environments and talking about this and even applying it to policy, identifying, you know, repeated patterns that reflect uh, issues with norms. I'll give you one example. I, I talk a lot about how uh, you know, these kind of contexts where there's very, a lot of normlessness and, you know, extreme looseness, they typically invite tight forces, whether they're extremists or they're autocratic leaders. And it's a very predictable pattern that when we have normlessness or, you know, people can't coordinate in context, they yearn for that kind of security. And many people have said this, philosophers over the century, but we have research that can see, you know, after even Arab Spring, after Mubarak was overthrown, people felt like the place was totally chaotic. And those people were really wanted a, 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 the Muslim Brotherhood or another autocratic government um, to take over. Because, you know, there's a phrase that, you know, a thousand years of, um, you know, a hundred years of, uh, of of chaos is really intolerable. Like you'd rather have an autocrat to do that. It gives you some level of certainty, doesn't it, I guess? Yeah, it's a, it's a pattern that is pretty predictable. That's what's interesting about it is that we could sort of think about okay, when there's cultural vacuums, uh, same could be said about ISIS. I mean, a lot of reasons why ISIS, you know, became um, a force in Iraq. But one of them is that they occupied places that had a tremendous amount of disorder that welcomed them when they first came there. Uh, people know that. But I talk about that in the book. We have some research on these areas. Mm. Um, so you know, it, it applies from basic things like parenting, like how do you negotiate these norms? Of course, you have to negotiate with your spouse. Like I, I think, but it also applies to um, to politics, you know, and, and everywhere in between there. So, so what are some of the, the techniques that you um, suggest or talk about? <laughs> well, with the parenting part, what's interesting is you know you get married and you know, or even like in families, you know, you people fall differently on the tight loose spectrum. Hmm. I call it the tight loose mindset. And there's a quiz that I have on my website where you can sort of detect, like, where do you fall on this continuum? I mean, some of us have elements of both, but some people veer more tight and some people veer more loose. You know, uh, it, it's kind of like, you know, the idea of the chaos versus the order Muppets <laughs> the, from Muppet theory, Dalyolithic. You know, some people are more attentive to rules and they're managing their impulses and they like order. Other people are not as attentive to the rules and they are more impulsive and they they embrace ambiguity. And you put people like that together in a relationship or in a, you know, at work, you know, you can imagine that there's conflict. Is that um, just because of their conditions, you know, upbringing, their conditioned culture? I think it's multiply determined. You know, it could be based on your culture. It could be based on your generation, like what was happening when you were born. Right. Um, okay. It could be based on, um, you know, social class or the occupation that, you, that you're involved in. Um, so it's, it's interesting that, you know, we get married to people or we have relationships. We don't realize that we're going to fall differently, perhaps, sometimes on this spectrum. Quite often. And it could, and it can cause a lot of conflict. For example, financial decision-making, hmm. you know, it, coming from a tight and loose perspective could cause a lot of conflict. Or Absolutely. parenting. Yeah. Parent, parenting, you know, what, you know, I, one example in my house is that we, you know, we'll sit down and say, okay, here's the important domains that are important to have strict norms around and accountability, like, you know, studying for school or being nice to your sister. But I sort of said, hey, they could be slobs around the house. Like, that's one domain I'm going to be loose about. <laughs> um, my husband's not too happy about that. You know, he because he's more neat. <laughs> he's yeah. on the tighter end of the spectrum. But then again, it's just something that the more explicit you are about it, you could say these are my priority issues. Like this is really important to me, and I guess I can give up, you know, some control in these domains. Or if you're loose, you're like, okay, these are my important domains, but I'll 
allow for a little more rules in this domain. So maybe just sitting down and talking about the domains that are important to each individual or to the, the group as a, as a whole and then deciding yeah. on which ones may have the, the most weight of importance and, and sort of making tighter rules around those particular areas. Yeah, I mean, it applies exactly. I mean, you would think, for example, I just had a paper come out in Harvard Business Review last week that talks about the problems that tight loose brings to mergers and acquisitions. These are now organization, organizational mergers. And you know, a lot of times people form these mergers and acquisitions because they have a lot of technical compatibility, but they may have really deep cultural incompatibility. And we argued that it's really important to diagnose the culture in terms of tight and loose prior to the merger and to actively negotiate what loose cultures want to keep that autonomy, like, you know, to, to think through what needs to tighten up and what can stay loose and vice versa coming from the tight organizations. Because we see that when mergers um, have big differences in tight and loose come together, they actually have a lot of financial problems and often it's because people didn't recognize that they're coming from such different cultural traditions and they have different people and different practices and different types of leaders that reinforce that tight and loose, that normative structure. So it's, it, it really just is about diagnosing it and, and thinking about, for loose cultures, what you can give up autonomy on, what you can have a little more structure in and vice versa for tight cultures what you can allow some more discretion yeah okay so what makes a rule breaker i mean you i know you use an example of uh you know the mercedes driver running a red light whereas a uh, plumber in a van uh, potentially would not (laughs) yeah so that was a study done out of uc berkeley and it's it's interesting because we often think about social class in terms of our bank accounts but as it turns out i mentioned this a little earlier you know the working class um tends to have more rules when we ask the working class about rules, they tend to think them, about them positively. And upper class individuals that have more of a safety net think rules are kind of a nuisance. And you see this kind of rule breaking even in city streets, you know, that you see upper class cars more likely to violate traffic rules or even cut off pedestrians. <laughs> um, you see in conversations, people from the upper class more likely to break rules of conversational etiquette. And, and they even report engaging in some more unethical behavior sometimes. Uh, But again, on the flip side, they're more creative and they're more tolerant. And in our research, again, shows that trait ordered versus um, uh, openness trade-off. But, you know, one one thing I'd I'd say is like just maybe tomorrow, like go into an elevator and stand, face the back and see how people react to you, (laughs) you know, or do engage in some kind of norm violation. And, and it, what's so interesting is, first of all, it's really hard to do. Sounds I, like a bit of fun. To do. <laughs> yeah, but, it's, but it is interesting to think like, wow, we're so used to uh, following the rules that, uh, you know, trying to break them is a little bit uncomfortable, even in a loose culture. Well, jump in the elevator and sit on the floor. See how that goes. Exactly. Yeah. Or, push all the bu- or push all the buttons, you know, or go and take some French fries off of someone's plate in a restaurant. You know, I mean, it's like, hey, that looks really good. Can I just take a bite? <laughs> you know, there's just so many rules that we could violate. Um, and we have actually done some experiments where we go around the world breaking rules or wearing stigmatized types of identities and seeing how people treat us. And, you know, and I talk about that research in the book also as a, a way to understand and uh, how people, you know, react to norm violators, these rule breakers. You do a lot of experimental stuff. Yeah. Um, just on, <laughs> on the um, sort of the rule breakers, I mean, upper class, uh, you know, breaking rules, they're sort of, you know, yeah, as you said, they're in my way, you know, I'm just going to avoid that and, you know, go around it so I can keep moving forward. Uh, but at the same time, they sort of have some expectations around how 
things should be behaved in, in certain areas as well, don't they? Like whereas uh, maybe the lower class don't. Like um, again, it, it depends on the context of the situation. Would yeah. that be correct? I think so. I think that. Uh, actually, we haven't been able to study this because it's hard to get access to these samples. But I think the very, very upper class think like Victoria, England. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think they're super tight. Um, so in psychology parlance, we call this a curvilinear relationship. It's not linear, uh, tight, loose, and social class. Um, or think about the opposite end of the continuum, like uh, the ultra poor in inner cities tends to be exceedingly loose, like normless, because there's not a lot of monitoring, there's a lot of crime. So I think there's a lot of interesting areas to study this. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, in general, though, I'll say, and I talk about this in the book, that the people in higher power positions, can they live in looser worlds because they have more latitude. They, uh, you know, people who are in lower class positions, less power, have to abide by stricter standards. And we have some research on this. So there is that sense that, in general, uh, high power groups tend to have more latitude. Well, perhaps it goes back to that that level of threat, too. Like upper class don't have that, that perceived level of threat. Um but yet they want certain rules to be followed that uh, suit um, maybe their way of life, whereas maybe the lower class um, have a higher level of threat. Um, so they, you know, like the threat from authority if they if they break a rule, for example, or the threat yeah. that if they don't act a certain way, they may not get paid or whatever. Exactly. I mean, even in occupations, you know, mm. upper class occupations have far more discretion. They have less um potential danger. You know, you can try to show up and then check your email. And you think about working class occupations as they have been in manufacturing. Uh, You know, they're very rule based and you need rules to, you know, make sure you don't get hurt and you don't have a lot of discretion. So parents, you know, when they're raising young kids, they know that their kids need to follow those rules. You know, that that kind of creativity is not really helpful in those kinds of jobs. And um, actually, I was going to mention we, we've studied three-year-olds even in the lab where we oh, bring them into the lab and, and from the working class and the upper class. And even by age three, working class kids are reacting, uh, in this case, to puppets. They're playing with puppets who are playing a game with them. And the puppet starts to violate the rules of the game. And we just see how do the kids react to this puppet. And it's remarkable by that age, you know, that those kids are, are already not liking those rule violations and the middle and upper class huh. kids are more tolerant of them. So these are things that are very deeply yeah. ingrained. Yeah. Um, and it's important in our new globalized world, you know, that to recognize these differences, have empathy uh, for people from different social classes. It's playing into electoral dynamics all over the world because, we don't understand where people are coming from and how threatened they feel and why they're voting for autocratic leaders. Why, you know, it's not so puzzling when you step back and think about it from a tight loose perspective. Okay. What, um, so some of the experiments that, that you've done, um, what, what have been some of the really interesting ones? Maybe just one or two, if you can quickly give us some examples of, of some experimental tests you've done. Yeah, so I mentioned like one of our favorite experiments was Jesse Harrington was doing that study with the three-year-olds. Um, you know, we've been doing some other interesting experiments um, with neuroscience methods. Mm. Um, and so we can look at, you know, how are people's brains reacting to norm violations? If I tell you, you know, that Mary is in the library and she is studying, that's a normal behavior. But if I tell you Mary is in the library and she's shouting, that's a norm violation. And what's remarkable is that neuroscience, you know, even as sophisticated as it has not been looking at norms so much. It has been looking at how are norms embrained, we'd say. So we've been doing some experiments in the U.S. and China and looking at 
whether brain activity is different um, in these two countries when people are even reacting to normal lasers. And it turns out there's some pretty interesting differences. Yeah, right. um, and so that's one thing. Um, some other kind of crazy experiments on the neuroscience side that we've been doing is something that we call hyper-EEG, uh, which is essentially uh, looking at how two brains are interacting when their people are performing a task. Um, so it's basically dyadic level neuroscience. <laughs> and we look at how does threat affect the brain uh, and brain synchrony, uh, how the brains are communicating during threat. And that's a paper we just published recently. So we try to use really any method to try to study tight loose, um, whether it's neuroscience or we do a lot of evolutionary game theory modeling to try to uh, test artificial societies, um, and of course, experiments with our own lab. So, what, what have and, you found that, like, sort of? Sorry to interrupt. Um, no. That highlights within the brain um, when when you do these studies. Like, what what are the? Well, I guess the benefits of, of understanding what what areas are triggered and stuff. Well, you know, it's interesting to think about you know where do these cultural differences arise and. What we found in that one study published in the Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences is that Chinese, you know, when they're reacting to norm violations, their frontal area of the brain is really involved. This is the area where we're starting to think about punishment and about what we call theory of mind. Why did that person just do this? And American brains in this study had far less activation in the frontal area uh, as they were reacting to norm violations because they're used to more of these kind of violations. Um, but what was really super interesting is to see mm. that the differences in brain activity predicted this trade-off of openness and order that I told you about. So like in our sample, Chinese subjects were much more, had much more self-control um, and, uh, and Americans had less. And that brain activity in part was explaining some of those differences. Um, uh, Americans were far more creative in this study. And you could think about it, if you're not really noticing rule violations around you, you know, th those people are more creative in general. They're also thinking outside the box more. Mm. Um, so that's the kind of order and openness trade-off uh, okay. that you could see yeah. in brains. Oh, interesting. Cool, cool. Well, look, I want to jump into some um, quick round <laughs> questions with you, Michelle. It sounds like a, a fascinating read, so I'm going to stick the link in the show notes for everyone out there listening today. Um, do head over Thank to the com. Um, this will be episode 682, wow. I think. <laughs> Um, so check that out. Yeah, we're getting up there. Uh, and uh, pick up a copy of the book. Uh, Michelle, the question, the first question after you is what routines or rituals do you have that you believe contribute to your success? Uh, that's a really interesting question. I, you know, I tend to have routines that I, I like to be doing that, especially on the sort of health wise, like I do meditation quite a bit, you know, just even for two minutes, just to center um, and I do jazzercise, which is a form of exercise that like, I, I feel I have a repeated sense of, okay, these are the kinds of things that help me to maintain my physical health. Um, and I, on the relational side, I think I, I like to have traditions. You know, I, my, my daughter, Hannah will say, mom, I'm going to charge you a dollar for every new tradition that you invent in this house, <laughs> because I like to kind of have, uh, you know, things that we do repeatedly, um, uh, whether it's, you know, uh, going around the table saying what we're grateful for every week, you know, that's a tradition that I tried to invent, you know, cause I want to have that since we're lead very busy lives, you know, I travel to do research, but we have this common sets of things that connect us. And I, I think that's always been something I've tried to do. That's pretty cool. I like that. And what, how do you define success? That's so interesting. I mean, I, I think I alluded to this earlier. I really value learning a lot, just learning as much as humanly possible. You know, and I'm a generalist, so I define success as like learning a lot. Um, 
and trying to come up with innovative ideas um, based on that learning. So that's, to me, like what really gets me fired up. Cool, cool. What advice would you give your 20-year-old self? <laughs> Get a haircut. You know, that hair was really uh, too too big. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, you know, um, I think as a kid, you know, I was pretty passionate, but, you know, you're still a little nervous to take risks. And I would tell that kid, just go for it. Like I did it anyway, but I would say, you know, uh, to just take a lot of risks and let your passion take you to trust in that passion that will, you'll get to where you need to be. Yeah. Cool. That's good advice. What, (laughs) what tools, techniques or practices do you have that you believe contribute to your productivity or effectiveness in what you do? Oh boy. <laughs> Just one time uh, practice. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting. I, I advise a lot of junior faculty here at Maryland. And one of the things I always advise them is something I, I did to myself when I was a junior professor, um, to deal with the anxiety of tenure and promotion. And I kind of, for every project have my learning goals, like what I'm really hoping to learn. And then my performance goals, like things that you were hoping to get out of it, whether it's a publication or, and I always felt like, you know, the learning goals, even if the performance goals don't work out, like you, you still have achieved so much when it comes to learning a new technique or, or uh, a body of research. And so I, it helped me kind of to think about what are we trying to do here? Of course, we're trying to publish. We're trying to, you know, impact some setting. But we're also learning. And that helped me to um, broaden my view of what success is, like we said earlier. Yeah, cool. I like that. What – oh, here we go. What – if you were to be served your last meal, what would you request? <laughs> oh, boy. Well, so I totally a food – a foodie – so I think my request would be to have samples of all my favorite food. So um, I love Ethiopian food. I love spicy food. So I'd have like my kitfo and I love Korean food. I love Greek food. So I would have kind of a smorgasbord and I'd have for sure a very nice bottle of dry German Riesling wine. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> uh, right up my alley by the sounds of it. Okay, next uh, question. What is your favorite leisure activity or favorite activity? Um. I would say, you know, I, I love being a parent. Like I love, you know, kind of being a, a mentor to my kids, to my students. It gives me a lot of pride to kind of help people to believe in themselves, you know, to kind of think about their future self and, and imagine themselves. And I, I I love doing that. Um, and so that's one thing that I just love to do is just to be a mom and be a great advisor to my students who are almost like your kids. Yeah, that's cool. What book would you pass down? One book would you pass down to your kids? Oh, I've been trying to get them to read this. <laughs> you know, I've, I've been reading a ton of Buddhism books um, because I, I think that it's such a deeply useful principle that can be applied with any religion. And I said there's a lot of not-so-great books out there, but the, the books that I really love are by Yangyi Rinpoche. Uh, one book is called Joyful Wisdom. Joyful um, wisdom. Okay. Yeah, and I just find, um, or also another is the joy of living by him, and I just find myself rereading these books all the time. They're just they're really accessible. They demystify Buddhism and how it can help you in your everyday life. Um, uh, they tell great stories, and I've never found any better books than them. Um, and so I really recommend them. Yeah, cool. I'll stick them on my list. I have, I have one other recommendation if I can throw it in there, which is more on history. And I, I, I really loved Herodotus's book called The Histories. 
Uh, and it's basically like one of the first cross-cultural psychology texts. You know, this is like his, his travels through the world. This is, you know, hundreds, thousands of years ago. Uh, and it's really a fascinating read about, it's like a travel diary, <laughs> but it took place, you know, a millennium ago. So I, I highly recommend the histories also. What's it called? The histories? Yeah. Okay, cool. Guys, I'll stick those in the show notes too. So check it out at thehiddenwide.com along with Michelle's book as well. What is a quote or phrase that you would tweet or text to everyone in the world? Oh, that's such an interesting question. Um, you know, when I was in Champaign working with Harry Triandis, my advisor, uh, founder of the field of cross-cultural psych, he said to me, he had three pieces of advice, and one of them is relevant to this question. And one was be passionate about what you do. And, uh, you know, that's, I think, very key advice. Just be passionate. Find a passion. Uh, the other was no, don't be afraid to be controversial. Uh, but the third one, which I found is the most difficult, but I would, I would put this on the list of that tweet, is don't take yourself too seriously. <laughs> you know, I think often, you know, I try to practice this, you know, it's really not that important, whatever's stressing you out. Like, don't take yourself that seriously. Like, life is bigger than this. And, uh, and I think that's an important thing for many of us is to just kind of step back and not take ourselves too seriously. Uh, I think it's one I should get tattooed on my body. <laughs> so I could see it because it just uh, it's it's so true. Uh, cool. I've got a few more questions. The next one is: Do you believe we all have a hidden why or purpose? Um, it's such an interesting question. I'm, you know, I think probably my first inclination was, just, yeah, we all do. And but you know, then I th- sort of backed up and I thought, you know, I kind of see that. You know, some people really have a very strong purpose of what they want to do with their lives, and and others don't. Uh, and I think sometimes, you know, so I think it's kind of an individual difference. Um, they, okay. you know, I think it's more important to some people than others. Uh, and not everyone who doesn't have a purpose feels like it's a problem. You know, uh, so I think it's that's how I kind of wound up coming to uh, to think about that question. That maybe not, maybe not everyone does. Yeah. Okay. Cool. What does living life with passion and purpose mean to you? I think it really means uh, having a lot of new experiences, like being open to just learning and doing something different and and getting new ideas. I, I try to do that in my own research by just working with as many different types of people as possible from different disciplines because I want to learn what they do and think about how it can be integrated with what I do. So I think passion and purpose to me mean just really a lot about learning. Yeah, and you touched on that. Um, touched on that a lot, like experiences in life. I was thinking about this the other day. Experiences, and certainly, you know, lear- I mean, experience is learning, isn't it? Whether that's traveling to a country or reading a book. Um, yeah, I, I think it's it's a grand way to live life. Uh, yeah, I think you'll never be bored if you have that. You know, I think you know, I think you know that those kinds of new experiences and learning. And I mean, I guess that maybe a. To, I'm a little bit like that to a fault because I'm a real generalist. So I'm interested by most everything. You know, I think I'm, yeah, you know, I'm like, hyperventilating. Yeah. But, <laughs> you know, so that could be a disadvantage. But I find that, uh, you know, it's, it definitely keeps you busy and, and it helps you to not be bored ever. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Um, I can definitely relate. Uh, final question. What is the underlying motivation behind everything you do? Oh, boy. <laughs> um, I think discovery. You know, kind of that's the general principle by like discovering uh, new things to learn about uh, in the scientific realm. I really like to just come up with the craziest ideas and test them and 
many of them don't work. <laughs> but I think, you know, in our research lab, like we try to have fun. We also try to do good science, but we also want to say, look, let's enjoy this and let's come up with some really super crazy ideas. Um, uh, so I think that for me is, is probably what I'd say is that discovery of, on a daily basis um, drives most things. Drives you. Yeah, that's cool. Michelle Gelfland, it's been a absolute pleasure. How can people best reach out to you? Oh, so on my website is uh, www.michellegelfand, that's with one L, uh, G-E-L-F-A-N-D.com. Yeah. And I have uh, information about uh, all my research on, the, on there. I have pictures of our group and even of my family, and I have a picture of me dressed up in the giant pickle costume, if you want to see mm. it. There's a story behind that. And I also have information about the book. Um, I had to order it, excerpt from the book, quiz about your mindset, and other uh, quotes that come from other people about the book. There you go. I'm going to jump on there and check out the pictures of your family. I didn't see that. <laughs> yeah, there's a gallery where you could see, you know, uh, pictures of the family and pictures of my students. And uh, I think my dog might be on there too. I, I should have mentioned that a big part of my life. Where do we go for that? What, what tab's that under? <laughs> uh, it's probably under research group. Uh, and it would be under a galley. Um, so that you could see, and, and there's some that talk that have like a family link um, where you'll see some uh, see my kids, um, and I'm hoping that my dog Pepper is, is on there, but I'm not totally sure that that she is. <laughs> I have that dog listening to jazz every night, so she really likes uh, likes jazz. Yeah, it's under lab Culture and lab. Gallery. Yeah, so if you go to michellegelfand.com and then you'll see lab under gallery, it should show all the pictures. All right. Cool, cool. <laughs> check it out now. <laughs> Michelle, thank you, guys. Check it all out at thehiddenwire.com, episode uh, 682, I think I said. Uh, so check that out. and The links will be there. Pick up a copy of the book and support Michelle on her journey. Thank you so much for having me. I'm such a big fan of The Hidden Why and, and what you do. So thank you for having me. I appreciate that. Thanks very much. And until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwide.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcast. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden why this is the hidden why my name is Lee Manutzi until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon